Welcome to the Vintage Grace Sunday Podcast. We hope our series on the book of Revelation will challenge and encourage you to grow closer to God and recognize that He wins. Let this message be a reminder to you of His love for you and the plan that He has for your life. Okay, you guys ready to get started? Okay. Hey, uh, when you think of Jesus, what picture comes to mind for you? Just give it a minute. When you think of Jesus, you think of who he is, what he's like, what comes to mind? You think of like flannel graph Jesus. Do you think of the Jesus from like the movies? Do you think of like the, the, like the Jesus in the paintings that you've seen? What, what comes to your mind when you think of the person of Jesus? What image? Because it's really, really important that whatever image of Jesus we have is an accurate one. So here's what I did. I scoured the internet and I found photographic evidence of Jesus from multiple different domains and different art forms that I'm going to share with you today. Are you ready? Okay, here we go. The first one is this beautiful flannel graph. This was my first Jesus. Um, flannel graph Jesus is great. They would stick it on there. This is actually circa 1994. You can still buy these today. I looked it up and almost bought one. Flannel graph Jesus, maybe you think of Jesus in that context, Sunday school, fishy crackers, that kind of deal. There's also Ricky Bobby's favorite Jesus, baby Jesus. Woo! Hey man, look at that. That's a, that's a beautiful baby Jesus, okay? I could imagine praying to that. That's a, good, that's a good one. He looks so beautiful. It's a little bit of Renaissance art there. We're not gonna get into art history today, but if you want a little fun fact, we're gonna move on. Um, the next one is, and get, get this, all right? So I go, I'm searching pictures of Jesus, and I find this picture, and the way that Google tagged this image was hot Jesus. Oh. So, some of you are a little uncomfortable right now because you were like, yeah, right? Then you're like, oh, oh, can I, can I do that in church? Is this okay? Is he coming back next week? This, <laughs> this is a great one. It's from one of those Bible series TV shows, but I love this picture of Jesus. For the record, Jesus was not a very attractive man. He told us that in Isaiah. He said that there was gonna be nothing about him that was gonna be overly appealing on like a physical attractive side. So good try, Hollywood, but hot Jesus does not get the pass. <laughs> now, maybe you're like, dude, obviously not hot Jesus, but I, I could see buff Jesus. You know what I mean? I could see, <laughs> dang! <laughs> that is... That is some vascularity, okay, for my man. Hey, shout out Hunter Ona, that's my boy. He got me hooked up with the buff Jesus. Yeah, that's good. So buff Jesus, you know, this is the kind of Jesus that he gets up on the cross and would have just broke it. And there's a picture of that, but it's, it's a little bit more racy. Okay, this next one, where y'all know the YA knows, you, you know the picture YA. Okay, here's the deal. Uh, this one's a little edgy, but I'm gonna go here anyway. Uh, Mormon Jesus, he's blonde with blue eyes. And I see where they're going. Some of you guys are uncomfortably like, where is this about to go? <laughs> Am I in safe hands? You'll find out. Blonde Jesus, blue eyes, doesn't really seem to be that accurate, but somebody did us a favor and made a more accurate Mormon Jesus. Here we go. That's <laughs> pretty good. That was edgy. That was a little edgy. I'm sorry. I, I'm gonna have to. I'm so sorry, guys. We're, I am the youth pastor usually, so you can see where 
put teaching in my title. So, okay, here we are. Mormon Jesus, I like that Jesus, honestly. He looks like a real good corporate, upstanding, white-collar man. He's just like, I would follow that man off a cliff. Okay, next one. Catholic Jesus. Um, I like Catholic Jesus in general. Again, the blue eye thing, I'm not sure where we're getting this. He was a Middle Eastern man. But, uh, and then also, he's always like doing the gang sign <laughs> in the Catholic pictures. Um, and, then, and then the heart, I still don't quite get, because it's like, I know it's like the sacre coeur, or sacre or whatever you want to say, uh, sacred heart. Anyway, definitely doesn't seem that accurate, but the last Jesus, the one that really rose to popularity in the 2010s and beyond is internet Jesus. <laughs> and this, this really just, I feel like depicts the theology of our age. Like people kind of think of Jesus over there like, you go buddy, like do whatever you want. Like I forgave you. Like that is just like the theology of our day. And so here's, that's internet Jesus. You know, I, I show you these to be very explicit in jest, okay? I don't think Jesus looks like any of those pictures for that matter. And you can move on, Jess. You're awesome. Thank you. Um, I, Jesus probably didn't look like any of those pictures. But our image of Jesus and what Jesus is really like is so critical for us to have a true understanding of. Because what Jesus is really like informs how you live your life. Here's why. If you are a Christian, if you're a follower of Christ, what Christian means is little Christ. It means that you model your life, what you think, what you feel, what you do, after the person and work of Jesus. And so our picture of Jesus is so critical because it ideally would influence every single aspect of who we are and of what we do. You know, I grew up with an image of Jesus that was kind of far off, a little cold, a little calculated, said the right thing at the right time every time. I grew up with the image of Jesus that was detached emotionally. And it wasn't until I really went into, into college and started diving into like deep, deep study that I read this book called The Jesus I Never Knew. I, it's a great book. What it did is it started to undo some of my perceptions of who this man Jesus really is and really was. I learned that Jesus had a sense of humor. If you read through the gospels, like there's very many moments we should be rolling on the floor laughing at things that he said. I learned that Jesus was sarcastic sometimes. I learned that Jesus was with people. He was an incredible listener. He was present. Jesus saw people and wanted to hang out with the people who were on the margins of society. The ones that nobody wanted to hang around with, the ones that nobody valued, the ones that were always overlooked. Those were like the first people Jesus went to, were the people on the margins. That's the kind of person Jesus was. And the more I started to like learn about who Jesus was and then take an inventory of my life, the more I was realizing that there's some incongruency between like me claiming to be a little Christ and the Christ himself. Jesus himself, who he is, what he's like, is something we have to know and have to be keenly aware of. But the problem is, is our culture is inundated with misconceptions of who Jesus really is. So who is Jesus really? Here's the good news. The book of Revelation was actually written to show us who Jesus really is. Here's what revelation means, okay? It's not revelations. I know that's easy to mix up. It's okay. We've all said it. It's the revelation 
of Jesus Christ. That's the title of this book. That's what John says the title of the book is. The word in Greek is actually apocalypse, apocalypsis. Now, some of you are like, apocalypse? Like, that's like the raining fire, all that stuff. No, apocalypse means the unveiling, the revealing, the showing what true reality is. So what John does in the apocalypse of Jesus is he pulls back the curtain of what reality really is. He says, this is who Jesus is really. And that's what the point of this book is. It's actually for us to know Jesus. It's for us to know what he's really like and what he's about. And so sometimes we come to the book of Revelation with our own like neediness and our own bias and our own like opinions of where it's going. The bottom line of what John's trying to get us to see is Jesus. So last week we started. This week we're picking up in verse nine. But what I want to do is uh, we're going to revisit some ground rules, rules because it bears repeating. And for all of us who are going to be here, these are some really good guidelines as we go to walk through Revelation. Revelation is about the unseen present of Jesus and the unseen future of where we're headed, okay? Revelation shows us who Jesus is. That's why it's called the revelation of Jesus Christ. But here's some guiding parameters, okay? When you read through Revelation, sometimes we ask the question, what did John really see? Okay, we're reading it, and and I was that little kid in third grade who found Revelation in the back of my Bible and was like reading it at night because it's like science fiction. I'm like, this is so sick. There's like a scorpion that's flying with a man face. And then, and then you get into the, the deep backwoods of Christianity and it's like, those are Apache helicopters, okay? The man face, that's the guy with the helmet and then the flying scorpion, the stinger. And like people get deep into trying to figure out what did John see? It actually doesn't matter so much what John saw in as much as it matters what John means, matters way more what he means, okay? So when you get to like a beast with multiple horns and multiple crowns on a horn, the question isn't, okay, was there really a beast with horns? It's what does he mean by the horn? What does he mean by the crowns? And those symbols, here's the deal. If you were reading Revelation in the first century when it was written, you would have been like, oh, duh, the horn and the crowns, it's just like Daniel, obviously, and here's what it means. For us today, there's a massive gap between the level of inundation we have with the Old Testament and what the kind of symbology was present inside of the prophetic works and today. Today, we're like, a crown and horns? What are you talking about? For them, imagery would have been recalled very quickly when they saw some of these things that John refers to. And so we actually have some work to do in bringing ourselves back to the OT and like really understanding some of these Old Testament imagery, okay? So it matters more what he means than what exactly it is that he saw. Another one that people get tripped up on, I get tripped up on is this. It's less important what happens next than what John sees next, okay? The chronology of Revelation is not chronological, you following? So you go, you read, read through Revelation, you're like, okay, I feel like I've actually seen a couple gathering of witnesses and, and how many times did that really happen? And, like, and people try to take the book of Revelation and then map it to a timeline. That's not really John's point. What John sees is what's important. What he sees is the witnesses gathered. Is it exactly 144,000? Is it a metaphorical 144,000? That's what we have to figure out when we go through it and look at, hey, what does he mean by 144,000? Will there actually be that many witnesses or what's he really getting at? Those are the more important questions theologically that we need to ask of the book of Revelation. 
a good thing to remember in verse three is it says that blessed are those who read these words and hear them and do something about them. So Revelation is intended to be a blessing. Drew did a great job of laying that out for us last week. Like this book is supposed to bless you as a follower of Jesus. It's not supposed to be scary. It's not supposed to be avoided or unopened. It's to bless you. So here's our promise to you. We hit this last week. We're gonna hit it again. Cause like I said, gotta hear things multiple times to lock this in, all right? So our promise to you is this. We're gonna do our best to chase after author's intent. What did John really mean, okay? We're not gonna get weird. We're not gonna go Da Vinci Code on you guys and be like, you see the painting with the black light on the wall? And like, we're not gonna get weird, okay? If, can you guys promise not to get weird with us? No, okay. <laughs> Why do you think I'm here? Just kidding. Okay, so, so we're gonna promise not to get weird but we would ask you guys, hey, let, let's come to this. And, and one, of our, one of our guys, he had a really, really good way of putting this. He said, we need to get some divine amnesia, okay? We need, to forget, we need to forget some of the preconceived notions that we have about Revelation because we're gonna come with the Apache helicopter in our back pocket and being like, I don't know, it seems like that's what it could be. We, we don't wanna come to it with those kinds of ideas. We wanna come like, okay, Jesus, what do you have for me in this book? What did you want me to know? And we're going to say big ideas are more important than the little ideas. It's more important to go through the big picture and not to get lost in the sauce of what starts to happen in Revelation with certain phrases or, or numbers that maybe don't click for us. So we're going to keep big ideas more important than little ideas. You guys think we can do that? Great. You said it last week, so we're going to say it again, and now we're locked in. Okay. There's no turning back. Here we go. Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. Here's what's happening. John has introduced to us the big idea of this book. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And Jesus reigns with his church. He's there with his people. He's on the throne. And so John actually addresses these seven churches that are from the region that he was likely doing some ministry in, okay? And in that region, there was an increase in the worship of this emperor, okay, the Caesar. And so what he does is to come against that kind of emperor worship, he shows people that Jesus is on the throne. He shows them the vision that he's given by Jesus when he's in the spirit. And so he's encouraging them to stick with the truth, to not give up, to hang on to the realities of who Jesus is. They needed to see who Jesus really is. So John 1, or sorry, Revelation 1, verse 9 says this. I, John, your brother, and partner in the tribulation and kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Let's start with John. Last week, we saved it for this week. Who is this John we're reading about? At first glance, maybe you read it and you think, oh, this is the John who wrote John, and this is the John who was the beloved disciple with Jesus. Here's the reality. When it comes to how people are trying to unpack the book of Revelation, there is a discrepancy on who they think this John is. There's a big group of people, very well-respected scholars, who lean toward a person named John the Elder, not the John that had been following around Jesus in the same way that John the Beloved was. There's another group of people who would say it's John the Beloved. They have really solid arguments for it. They can build up a great case for it from whether it has to do with like different references he makes specifically of Jesus or even church history referencing back to him being the actual author of this. Here's what matters. In, especially in biblical criticism, it can go way into the weeds. And there's people who are like, yeah, John didn't write any of it. And here's the six different sources. Like you can go way into the weeds with this thing. 
What's important is that there was a man named John. He was a faithful disciple of Jesus, and he was suffering for his discipleship to Jesus. He was exiled to this island called Patmos because of his discipleship to Jesus. Now, I probably lean a little bit more toward John the Beloved than I would John the Elder, but there's people who lean more toward John the Elder. We can agree to disagree. Is that, I know it's a very foreign concept in 2022. You're like, wait, we disagree? I'm blocking you on every social media platform. You have a different idea than I do? I'm gonna make sure my friends block you too. Ooh, it's getting moody. Um, <laughs> he's coming back. Just kidding. I'm kidding, gosh. Hi, thanks. Okay, so here's, here's the deal. We, when we disagree with people, sometimes we just put them into camps and write them off. It's like, maybe we could have a little more emotional maturity than that and agree to disagree on some things, and that's okay. Because there are some things that are okay to hold in tension. And you look at Jesus' first followers, that first like 12 that he gathered together, he had numbered among them a zealot, which was basically like somebody who was trying to overthrow the Roman government and burn down buildings. And then he had with him a tax collector, an employee of the Roman government. They're both on the same team. They both wrote big portions of the New Testament. They both were faithful followers of Jesus. It's okay to disagree sometimes. And so even in this arena, there's probably not gonna be any major theological implication that we can drag out from whether or not it was John the Elder or John the Beloved. But what we do know is there's a man named John who loved Jesus and had a vision of Jesus and was told by Jesus to write it down for us because we needed to know it. So he's on this island called Patmos. Patmos was actually this, think of it like Alcatraz, okay? So it was this island off the coast and it was kind of like a place where you'd be exiled to, but it wasn't, it wasn't like a deserted island, okay? He wasn't just alone in a cave. We know that there was a temple there and there were other settlements that were on that island from that same era. So he's exiled there because of what he believed, because he believed that Jesus was who he said he is. And so he writes this, I'm your brother, and partner in the tribulation, the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. There's our first trigger word for the morning, tribulation. That's one that people wanna fight about all day. Wait, tribulation, like the tribulation? A tribulation? What does he mean? See, I actually like the NIV's rendering here a little bit better because it says, your patient brother in the suffering but it's helpful to understand this word tribulation. You see, I grew up in a pre-mill, pre-trib like, uh, perspective on Revelation. As I've been studying and growing more, I'm just like more optimistic than, than anything. You know, you got pre-mill, you got ah-mill, you got post-mill, I'm optimill, okay? Something good's gonna happen and Jesus is in control. I lean certain ways, but I'm optimill, okay? Maybe some, well, they will write a book, Finish Grace, let's go. Challenge the heresy. Anyway, um, so this word tribulation, though, carries with it a connotation. Why would John choose to use this? If you dig into the Greek, the word there is lepsis, and that's the word that's also used for tribulation. It's also used for suffering. So what's he talking about? You see, if you read through Revelation, what you're going to see is this idea of tribulation, this idea of suffering and persecution against the church is a through line in the entire letter. It goes from start to finish. You see, the persecution of the church started when there was the church. 
right? There are also cycles throughout history of intense persecution of the church. We can know that just by looking back at our history books. We also know that there are coming future persecutions of the church, other tribulations of the church. Now, whether or not it's the three and a half window, other three and a half window, we don't know. What we do know that he's referencing here is suffering that the church is undergoing because they are in who? Jesus, right? Okay, so that's actually what's most important here. That's what I mean when we say we need to lay down some of our preconceived notions. What matters here is John saying, hey, I'm with you in your suffering. I'm with you in your pain. And I'm with you in endurance and holding on till the end because of Jesus. Even this is about Jesus. It's not about tribulation, not tribulation, kingdom, patient endurance. He says, look, I am with you in this. That's why I'm on Patmos. And he goes on to say this in the next verses. He says, verse 10, we're only one verse in, guys. <sighs> I got 14 minutes. Let's do this. Okay. Verse 10, he says this, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. These seven churches he's referring to are seven of the most prominent cities in Asia Minor, the province that was ruled by the Roman government. These seven churches are real churches. If you look historically, these are real things that really existed. You can find archeological evidence of these different churches. Here's the challenge with the seven churches. It's one of those things that people sometimes fit into the category of symbolism. They'd say, okay, well, actually the seven churches represent seven ages across the history of the church. On some level, they're kind of right. You can, if you do really good eisegesis, map the seven eras of the church history to the seven eras of the, or the seven letters in Revelation. You could do that. I don't know if that's John's point, but there's many people who think that's the perspective. There are other people who would say, actually, these seven churches are actually just seven different buckets that us Christians find ourselves in sometimes. I think there's actually a lot of benefit to that as well. Because if you think about the way that John's writing, if these are real Christian communities he's writing to, there's real instruction that was there for them. When we do good exegesis, we figure out what it said there and then, and then apply it to here and now. I, I would say the letter to Ephesus is one of the most convicting letters you're gonna read. It says, you have forsaken your first love. Like that hits me, because I'm like, wow, when I read that, I'm, I'm brought by the Spirit to think to myself, have I been more concerned with just doing things for Jesus? Have I been more concerned with just like showing up or putting in work? Or do I actually love him? There's great utility in the letters for actual spiritual transformation. And so yes, it can represent that. Maybe you're in the spot of Philadelphia or Laodicea. Like it, it can apply there. But what's most important is Jesus, right? So Jesus wants these letters written. There are seven communities. Also, the order that he writes this in is the geographical order in which they would have received the letters, which gives more credence to the idea that they're written to real people in real time, real place. So he says, write these letters. And here's where this vision of Jesus comes into play. Now, uh, how many of you, you like documentaries? Any documentary people in here? Okay, good. Last service, they were like, 
Mm-mm. No, I, I love that you guys, uh, half of you love them. I am a big fan of one called Chef's Table. You guys heard of Chef's Table? It's an, it's an oldie but goodie. And when I say oldie, I mean like five years old. And I love Chef's Table, but they would like, that thing, I'm rewatching it right now. That's why it's on my, on my radar. But they would like set up this like little salmon egg dish. You know what I'm saying? A little orange, shiny things, right? And they get this camera that costs more than most of your cars. And I know most of you have nice cars too. Like it's, it's nice camera goes, and just like this epic slow motion of the little salmon eggs. And they're like spinning on the plate. And you're just like, ah. okay, I get excited by that imagery, right? Now some of you are all like, where is this going? <laughs> Listen, you guys know me by now. I'm going somewhere important. Hang on, okay? So here's the deal. That imagery, when I watch that, I get inspired. I hear about the story of this guy who spent years of his life just begging to work in these French chef kitchens to learn how to make the perfect sauce and then eventually just make salmon eggs. Like they devote their whole life to this craft. And I look at that and I'm like, you know, if they can do that with salmon eggs, I can be a better dad. Amen. (laughs) Amen. Here's what I'm saying. Like if they can devote their whole life to just like garnishing this thing, I'm like, gosh, dang it. Like, I can actually step up. You know, like maybe some of you don't get that. It's okay, you'll get there. Here's, the, here's what I'm trying to say. Imagery, imagery has the ability to inspire you to step into what's best for you. Okay, so imagery and, and picturing a preferred future or seeing something that's incredible, it can pull out of you something you didn't know that you had. What we know from what Jesus does is he shows us images of himself that are supposed to call us into a more faithful commitment to him. Following? So this image, we're gonna zoom in on it, okay? It's gonna be chef's table. We're gonna go for it. But what I want us to do first, and I'm pulling the youth pastor card, I want you guys to close your eyes when I read this to you. And what I want you to do is try to picture it. Try to picture it. Try to picture what what would this have looked like? Verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his waist. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. Just try to hold that image for a second. Like, what, what is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus? You guys can open your eyes if you want. Like, This picture of who Jesus is, is one of the first glimpses that we get in the revelation of who Jesus is. It's the unseen reality that's going around us at all times. This is Jesus, glorious, enthroned. I know a lot of times we talk about the throne of our heart, right? And how we wanna knock things off this place in our heart that we often put up to worship and we need to let Jesus sit there. Whether or not we knock Jesus off the throne of our heart, Jesus sits enthroned. He sits enthroned in heaven. This is what he's like. 
Now, language evades, or, or like the actual image of Jesus evades the ability for language to capture what he's really looking like. That's why John uses words like snow, like flame, like burnished bronze. He's trying to pull from these things. And here's what we know. Each of these things that John is referencing holds and communicates a theological truth about who Jesus is, about what he's really like. And he's pulling on imagery from all over the scripture, particularly imagery from the book of Daniel. If you haven't heard about the book of Daniel enough times yet in the first two weeks, I would, I would recommend taking a, a deep dive into like seven through the end of the book. You're gonna see some similarities to what's going on in Revelation. He says he sees this person standing among his, this, these lampstands, one like a son of man. We know from Daniel 7 that the son of man that would ride on the clouds of whose kingdom would have no end, that is the, profo- the prophesied Messiah. Jesus is referred to as the son of man more times than any other title in the gospel. He's the son of man who's come to be the Messiah. So he says, I look and I saw the son of man and he's wearing this robe. The robe would have depicted something similar to like a high priest. The placement of the sash is an indicator that his work is finished. You see, in our culture, and this is a reference to uh, one of our our references that we love using from Daryl Johnson, but he said in his book, he's like, look, if you read something that said, there stood the man with the stethoscope, like you would probably infer that there's in some way involved in the medical profession. In the same way, when we hear about the son of man with the robe and the sash, we infer he's like the high priest. He's the high king who's finished his job and is enthroned. That's the kind of imagery happening here for the first century. He says that his head was white like wool. His hair was white like wool, like snow. This is actually a melding of two images that come from Daniel 7. At the top of Daniel 7, it refers to the ancient of days whose hair was white as wool. That's a reference to God himself, the one who is pre-existent, pre-eternal, who's been around forever and will be around forever. He's depicted as one with white hair that is like wool. John, in what he's seeing, melds these images of the Son of Man and the Ancient of Days, and he says, this is the Son of Man with the white hair and the wh- that's white as wool. He's saying Jesus is God. Jesus is the Ancient of Days. Jesus is pre-existent and eternal. Jesus is God. It's incredible as we dig into some of the, the, the implications there. He says, his eyes were like flame of fire. Fire represents purity. It also represents purifying. So fire would mean that he is pure. As you look into his eyes, you know he's pure. You know what his intention is. But also, his eyes have the ability to purify you. Jesus can see through whatever you've put up. He can see through whatever lie you want to live. He can see through whatever false talk you have. He can see right through it. And the power of Jesus is he can meet us in those places where we've kind of lied to ourselves and just purify it, cut through it. His voice was like the roar of many waters. If you guys have ever been like hiking in the seasons where it's been after like a big rain, just the sound of the rivers, whether it's by the confluence in Auburn or somewhere else, like how deafening that can get. That's what he's saying the sound of Jesus' voice is like. When he speaks, it is so loud that you, you, you lose sensibility to other voices. You can't hear the other things anymore because the rushing water is too loud. That's the picture of the voice of Jesus as he is now. In his right hand, he held seven stars. Now, these seven stars are later explained toward the end of this chapter. But we also know that in their day, in the first century, what many people believed is that there were only seven planets. 
So there were these seven stars that were in the heavens that were repeatable on these repeatable patterns. People would track them and they built astrologies out of them. You know, like you Capricorns in here? Yeah, okay. So they build whole astrologies out of it. Here's what John's saying with this one. He's like, look, the stars in his hand, Jesus is king over astrology. Okay, what, I don't know what the trend is now. Like, there's like people who say, yeah, I'm a Gemini, but I'm like a rising Aries and like a setting. Like, what? You know it's made up, right? Like, how much more made up does it need to sound before you wake up? I'm sorry. If you're into astrology, I love you. Please come back. I'm sorry. But... Like, he says, look, whatever astrology you think you're going to believe that's going to control your life, it's mine too. The seven stars, the heavens are in his hand. It says, out of his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. The symbolism there is that, is that the divine word, the divine logos, what it can do is it can separate truth from falsehood. That's what we do with words in conversation. We're like, no, not this, a little bit more that. We get to shared meaning with the word. We actually use it as a sharp sword to get to what is true in a conversation. That's what Jesus is and what he does. He, coming out of his mouth, all the words that he speaks separates truth from lie. It says that his face was like the sun shining in its full strength. Here in El Dorado County, we know what that's like, <laughs> okay? It gets hot. It's like that, it's, this is what he's trying to picture for us. It's like this like massive, like you can feel it all over your body when you walk outside and you're like, please take me back to air conditioning. Like it's this powerful, powerful picture of Jesus and the radiance of his glory. And so on seeing this image, he sees the glory of God, how incredible God is, how unimaginable he is, how you can't even reach him. And here's what happens in verse 17. It says this, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Yeah. That's about all you could probably do in that scenario if you saw Jesus in his full glory. He says, I fell to my feet as though dead. And then this glorious Jesus that defies linguistic interpretation comes up to him and places his hand on him. This is the Jesus John is revealing. He is glorious. He defies description. He is above all things. He is all powerful. And he's close to you. He's intimate. He sees you. He wants a relationship with you. That's him going and touching John. He's not far off. He's not distant. He's not removed. He's the God who is close. That's the revelation of Jesus. He says this, fear not, because I'm the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys to death in Hades. He says, I have the keys to death in Hades. He's like, look, I know looking around, you probably think Domitian has the keys to death in Hades. Domitian was the Caesar at the time who instituted the imperial worship of himself where every month they would have a day that was just dedicated to worshiping the Caesar. They would say, Caesar is Lord. They would pray to him. And so the churches he's writing to in Asia, they're the ones who are being, they're being like, influenced by this imperial cult of the emperor. And he says, and, and if you didn't believe, Domitian would have you killed. If you didn't believe, the guy before him would have you killed too and the guy before him. You see, those people were the ones who culturally held the keys to death in Hades. They decided who lived and who died on their whim. Jesus says, that's not how this works. I lived, I died, I rose again, and now I own death. 
I own Hades, the holding place of the dead, and their perspective of how that worked at that time. This means that we don't have to fear. This means that the idea of death, which is really the final problem of humanity, we don't have to fear it because it belongs to Jesus. Hades belongs to Jesus. I mean, all things are really his. And so anything that we're afraid of, anything we're concerned about, we can give to him because we know he holds the keys to death in Hades. Listen, the the first century Christians needed this because they were dying for their faith every day. They were afraid of death. They had to hear this message of this unseen reality that, no, the death that might be coming to you tomorrow, (laughs) it doesn't belong to them. Jesus has you. And if you die tomorrow, you're gonna be with him. That's the revelation of Jesus that emboldened them to walk in the truth and the faith of who Jesus is. Verse 19, he says, write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. That's where we get this understanding that revelation is the unseen present and the unseen future. He says, write the things that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars, and there's only a handful of times in Revelation they explain the signs to us, but this is a good one. He says, as for the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. He's saying, they're my church. These seven stars in my hand, yes, they represent the cosmos. They also represent the reality that I'm in control of my church. It's my church. It's not Domitian's. It's mine. And so he has confidence that he's trying to instill in John. He says, look, I'm among these lampstands. I'm aware intimately of what's going on in every church community. That theological truth reigns today. He's aware intimately of what goes on in every church community. The seven letters reference specific things that were happening in many of these churches. He references what was happening. How? Because Jesus stands among his church. So here's the big idea of Revelation. God wins. God won. That's why he has the keys. God is winning whatever battle you're in right now. And God ultimately wins. It doesn't matter what tense or what sense you use it in. It's true across the board. And it's important that we understand the multi-layers to the tenses that Jesus is the one who's victorious. Because it's in knowing that Jesus is victorious that we can have comfort and security and boldness in the gospel because he's already won. So whatever battle you're facing, Jesus has already won. So here's my question for you. How do you picture Jesus? I know we started with the flannel graph and some some fun, but but how do you really picture him? Is he a Jesus who's far off? Is he a Jesus with rules and regulations to stop you from having fun? Is he a Jesus that is uncaring? Is he a Jesus that's not close? Is he weak? Is he powerless? Or is he the revelation of Jesus Christ that we just looked at, enthroned, (laughs) powerful, glorious, The keys of death and Hades belong to him. The kind of Jesus that we would just fall on our face in worship if if we peeled back the curtain right now. You see, our picture of Jesus determines our perspective on life. Our picture of Jesus determines our perspective on life. If we don't have an accurate picture of Jesus, our understanding of what life is and what it's all about is just off. We'll always be off. We'll be flying upside down through life. 
But if we have a perspective of Jesus that recognizes that he's on the throne, that he's in control, that he's the one who is in charge of all things, he's the one who is most glorious, who is deserving of our praise, it changes the way that we think, changes the way that we feel, it changes what we do. Because when we are feeling doubt or we're feeling fear or we're feeling like it's just not gonna work out, when, when you're feeling tired of your marriage or you're feeling tired of parenting or tired of your job, tired of just showing up, whatever you're feeling, your picture of Jesus influences the, the level of import that those things have. So you say, you know what? My marriage matters because of who Jesus is. I'm gonna be faithful because of who Jesus is. It's that perspective that starts to change. But if we don't have the right picture of him, how are we gonna live a life with the perspective of who Jesus really is? In parenting, we're trans, we are transmitting the gospel to our children all the time in every action and interaction, and more importantly, in the ways that we apologize. We're showing the gospel to people. In that, we press on because we've seen a picture of Jesus that compels us to move forward in our jobs, the way that we love people around us, the way that we love people we disagree with. It all comes back to our picture of Jesus. So what's your picture of Jesus this morning? We know that he is exactly who John has revealed him to be, and we know that we can count on that for our lives. And so, so would you lean into that? Can you receive that of who Jesus is? Here's what I wanna invite you to do next. We're just gonna worship. We're gonna spend a moment and reflect on Jesus, but I hope that that image of who he is hangs in your mind, that you just think of who he really is, what he is now, the unseen present, unseen future, and let's worship Jesus together. Would you stand with me and we'll sing. Thank you for joining us for our Revelation series. As you go this week, be comforted by the knowledge that God is in control and He desires nothing more than for you to find full and complete joy in Him. See you next week.